invite you to open uh, the Bible, the Word of God, to Exodus chapter 3. I don't know if uh, that song resonates with your heart like it does mine, just in the fact that we need to be reminded, uh, and reminded again, and reminded today as we were yesterday, that there is a, uh, one, a phenomenal power, um, and what God has done and is doing in Jesus, has done through Jesus, and what he is doing and continuing to do through us. If we're not careful, we make... uh, we make life about us and we evaluate um, what God is, we, we evaluate the circumstances that we walk through in light of whether we have the strength, the wisdom, the understanding to be able to come out on the other side of difficulty um, in a good place. And I feel like if you boiled That nagging uh, voice in your head sometimes uh, in the still of the night. The one that causes worry and anxiety. If you boil all that down, kind of the root of that is this question, am I enough? Am I enough? Am I smart enough? Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Do I have my act together enough to be able to tackle what I'm walking through? Whether it's a... uh, a uh, bad call from the doctor about a condition, if it's um, an alert from your bank about financial difficulty, if it's news from your boss or your corporation you work for that they're downsizing, all those 10, right? Or even, let's not even go to our kids or extended family, this weightiness that happens and in in the still of the moment, we begin to ask our, our, this question, are we really enough to handle what's before us? And it's the same question that we're going to see Moses asking today. Am I enough? I want to pray for us quickly before we jump in. God, I thank you for uh, the truth of your word to us. That you don't leave us in the dark to wander around um, like mice hoping we find the cheese eventually, but God, that you have a determined plan for our life, that you're active in our life even now, that you know what we're walking through, the difficulty, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know all of these things. And you've promised that you're going to orchestrate them for our good, not our comfort, but for our good and for your glory. And your simple question to us is, will you trust me? I pray as we get into your word today that our heart to be encouraged, our sin um, we would see exposed, and then we would run to the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 3 opens up with Moses as a pretty insecure man. Moses had started out with a lot of confidence, if you remember. He was a good-looking guy in a high-paying job. He was Pharaoh's adopted son. But then he felt like God had wanted him to do something, namely to deliver Israel. And he tried a few things and they went bad. You can see the commentary behind the text in Acts 7 as Stephen um, is giving a defense for his faith. And he uses Moses as one of his main points. You remember this, the Jewish people mocked him and rejected him. Pharaoh disowned him and he ended up killing a man. That's a bad day at work, right? Everyone hates you, your boss fires you, on the way out to the parking lot you kill someone. 
That's, uh, you go home, how'd your day go, honey? Well, not good. So he flees to the desert where he ends up marrying a nomad girl and he spends the next 40 years there as a shepherd until this moment. That was not an accident, that was not some random occasion. This is something that God had been doing and preparing Moses for. And even though Moses doesn't even really see it here, as we walk through the text, Moses doesn't see that uh, the uh, providential nature of God and the fact that he was raised in Pharaoh's house, um, educated at the highest level, able to read and write. And that's where we get even this, uh, this, the scriptures from, the first five books uh, written by Moses, delivered by the Holy Spirit to him. And then not only that, but he has spent 40 years in the desert um, learning every nook and cranny, watering hole, place to find food because the Israelites would be in this very desert. But in light of all that, he, Moses, still does not see. Let's jump in at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God also known as Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is the word of the Lord. It's an interesting turn of events, and we're going to get to uh, more in the rest of the chapter. That Moses hears God speaking to him. And a lot of commentators say this is really the conversion experience of Moses. Up until this point, Moses was a bit of a deist, that he knew that there was a God, but he did not know that God. And in our world today, there's a lot of people who maybe they would take the form of an agnostic, is what they would call themselves, that I believe that there is some sort of prime mover out there somewhere that kind of got things going. Some would consider them to, to, uh, themselves to be deists and the fact that they believe in there's a God. <clears throat> But they don't know that God. And this is Moses as he's walking. And everything changed for Moses. And this is, if you're going to answer the question of who is God, this is the seminal text to go to. Because God is not only going to reveal 
a lot about his character that we're going to look at this morning, but also his personal nature, his invitation for us to know him. So he tells Moses that he's got this great plan for him. And immediately in verse 11, what did Moses do? He turns the discussion back to himself and asks the question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? Up until this point, the conversation had been about God and what God wanted to do, but now Moses makes himself the point of the conversation. Has that ever happened to you? Commentators say this reveals deep insecurities that Moses was carrying around from his previous failures. In fact, they point out the statement, who am I, is an echo of the very question that the Israelites had thrown in Moses' face the first time he tried to rescue them 40 years ago. Back in chapter 2, when he announced his plans to deliver them, and they said, who are you, and why would we ever follow you? Moses' reputation, a repetition of this question, shows us that their doubts, their doubts had seeped deeply into his soul. Which makes me pause just for a minute and ask ourselves the question, what has other people said about us in a negative light that has creeped into our soul? That helps us lose confidence in what God might want to do through us because of what other people think. And this is certainly what happened to Moses. And I love in verse 12, but God said, I will be with you. It's important, notice how God deals with Moses' insecurities, not the way we usually do it. Hey, Moses, God says, you're a good dude, man. And you don't, I mean, I've, I've got you to this place, and the whole thing in the Nile River, remember that? Like, I rescued you, remember all these things? God doesn't do that. He doesn't tell Moses any of these things. No, God says, Moses, what I want you to do, this is so good for me, look at me. This is not even about what you can do. This is not about your talent, your abilities. This is, this is about me and what I want to do, God says. God suddenly shifts the narrative back to himself. He says, but I will be with you. And that's because real confidence, genuine bravery comes not from a better assessment of our potential, but from a clearer view of God. Let me say that again. Real confidence and genuine bravery comes not from a better assessment of your potential, but from a clearer view of God. And sometimes we just need to hear this again and again, don't we? We need to hear God say to us, I'm going to be with you. We need to hear God remind us to turn our attention from everything that's going wrong, to even turn our attention away from ourselves and our potential, and just get a view of God. Is that not what the psalmist cries out? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the hills. And not just the hills themselves, but the maker of those hills. You ever notice how your kids have irrational fears? Maybe it's just my kids. And the irrational fears normally only come out of bedtime, right? You put them to bed and then the whole world breaks down. And they're suddenly thirsting to death, or they're hungry, or even more than that, they've got some scary something in their closet, or under their bed, or they're scared of the night. This is how this plays out at my house. Uh, A couple times a week, at least, one of my kids will call out from their bedrooms, or they'll come out into the living room with this 
irrational fear that I'm, I'm scared of whatever it is. And it's irrational because it doesn't even exist. And I just reassure them again and again, hey, baby, hey, you don't need to worry about that. Your dad's here. I'm, I'm right here. That happened this week, and I just thought it funny that we've been dealing with this for a decade or more with our kiddos, and they still have these irrational fears. And I felt the Lord just speak that into my heart, that I still do the same thing. How many occasions does the money start running tight and I start to panic? Or my day doesn't go well and I start to panic. Or someone doesn't approve of what I am or I'm doing and I start to panic. And I have to run to God and just voice those fears and insecurities and anxiety to him. And he just says again and again, hey bud, do not to worry about that. I'm here. This is what he does with Moses. God says, man, if we could get this church into the very depths of our hearts, God says in verse 12, I will be with you. Keep looking in verse 13. End of verse 12, he said, but I will be with you and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I love this too. And it's, he's not really going to get confirmation of what God's going to do until he's already done it. A lot of times we set the fleece out and we ask God to show up so we'll know that this is really what he's talking about. And God says, no, you don't get the confirmation before you take a step of obedience. You get it after the obedience. In verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. Moses still doesn't get it. Again, in this chapter and full of the next, he keeps asking God, but what if this happens? But what if that happens? What am I supposed to do? And in verse 14, and I think, that, of course, this, is, this might be the central verse of, this, of the whole book of Exodus, possibly even the whole uh, Pentateuch as a whole, the first five books of the Bible. God totally ignores Moses' questions and instead he spends the next nine verses focusing entirely on what he is. God has done, God is doing, and God will do. He tells Moses, Moses, I don't need you to be the champion, bud. I just need you to be available and obedient. Let me say this again to us. Confidence comes not from discovering greater things about ourselves, or tapping into your greatest potential. Confident, co confidence and bravery comes from seeing how big and powerful God is. Discovering his purposes for your life and then getting swept up into them. A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says it this way. You've probably heard this before. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. Knowing God or the study of God is called theology 
And to be honest, we are all theologians in some right, some of us worse than others. We all have a concept or study of God, and we proclaim that with our words or lack of words. And many people, and certainly even Moses here, right? They think this interaction with God is mainly about them. When it's not about them, it's about God. Many people make the critical mistake in reading the Bible. They assume the Bible's primarily about them. A manual for spiritual tips for helping them achieve the victorious Christian life. But the Bible's primarily not about you, it's about God. Page after page reveals who he is. And only when we come to an awareness of who he is can we discover who we are. Only by becoming confident in his purposes will we ever become confident in ours. Many of us have tried to find the will of God, but you've put all the emphasis on you. You need to discover the will of God for the world, his redemptive purposes in the world, and only then can we discover his actual will for us. Some of us have approached God trying to see how we can how God might be some magical genie to help kind of bless and help us achieve our life purpose, but we've got it all wrong. We are supposed to approach God surrendering our life to his. And that's where confidence and a real sense of purpose begins. We see a few things. We're going to get to this passage on who God is, but I think there's a few other things that I want to point out from this text. A good theology about who God is. First, we see that God is different. Again, in verse 2, let me return your attention there. As Moses sees a bush on fire, it says in verse 2, but it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great, great sight why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. God is speaking to Moses from a burning bush, but in the dry desert, and I, felt this, I found this alarming even as I read it, it wasn't the bush on fire that caught Moses' attention. It was the fact that it was on fire, but it was not being consumed. The, this is a desert that Moses is in, a very dry and arid place, and certainly in his 40 years of being in the desert as a shepherd, he had come upon a few different uh, bushes that had been on fire. But the uniqueness of this is that the bush burned without burning. And this is supposed to give us a glimpse into God's eternal and self-sustaining nature. The fire burned continually in the bush without burning up the bush. Well, we all understand, right, that fires need fuel. And when they consume the fuel, they go out. But the fire that Moses saw, however, was self-sustaining. It didn't require anything in the same way God the eternal father needs no external fuel. Nothing precedes him. Nothing sustains him. Nothing contains him. I've been talking with my kiddos about this. They've brought it up at least once a week for the past several months. Dad, when, when did God begin? And I think, man, that's a great question. Go ask Mr. Jason. When did God begin? God is altogether different than us. Now, sometimes we try to force upon him our finiteness. And we look at a situation and we think, oh, this is impossible. How in the world? God promised, right, that he would come through 
a virgin and be born in the city of Bethlehem. And yet he chose a girl who was betrothed to another person, to another man, living in a different city. How in the world? And yet God wields an empire to accomplish his purposes and will. And we look at this situation and we think, man, how in the world could this happen? And it's almost like the angels of the Lord in, in a sarcastic tone looked at these people and said, listen, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Don't try to put your grid or your scope on top of what God can do. He is outside of time. He is not limited by scope or power. He's altogether different. There are really two different myths that people tend to believe about God. First is that of a deist. Deists believe that God was involved in creating everything, but then he just steps back and kind of lets it happen, kind of like some weird science experiment with a hypothesis. Next are those who believe that God is like your wiser, older friend, maybe like a good chaplain, you know, maybe like a good youth pastor. You know, he shows up, takes you to ice cream sometimes, gives you a high five, encourages, a li- encourages you a little bit about, you know, you can do this kind of thing. Gives suggestions, a little wisdom, hangs out with you. This is represented with bumper stickers that say God is my co-pilot or t-shirts that say Jesus is my homeboy. And both of those myths are just that, they're myths. Not even close to the God of the Bible. Moses didn't leave this encounter and go make a t-shirt saying Jesus is my own boy. Nor did he put a sticker on the back of his chariot saying God is my co-pilot. Moses wouldn't have made it very far. God is altogether different. He's holy. Moses sees the bush and takes a few steps forward investigating why it's not burning. And God puts the brakes on him and says, Moses, don't take another step, bro. I want you to take off your sandals for the ground that you're standing on is holy. Isn't it interesting that Moses had probably passed by this ground a long time and didn't know that it was holy. And it wasn't holy because of the area. It was holy because God was there. And that's why I find this uh, so inspiring and encouraging that this morning, all over the world, in places maybe like this that look nothing like a sanctuary, we're in the midst of God's presence. And it becomes holy, not because of the architecture. It becomes holy because God's meeting us there. And for that matter, so do our homes and our cars and our cubicles. It's holy because God's there. And God's call for Moses to take off his shoes might not mean much to us, but we understand the, it, it, the, the respect it demands. But in many cultures today, removing your shoes is a sign of honor. It certainly did in the Eastern culture that Moses would have grown up in. Anytime he would come close to the Pharaoh, even though he was his adopted grandson, he would have to remove his sandals, in essence affirming that Pharaoh was the king. God is showing Moses and reminding Moses that there's a greater king than Pharaoh. Moses would need to learn this lesson as the difficulty would come. He is distinct and holy and altogether different. Another thing we learn about God is that he's present. I love this. This is the other part of this passage that spoke so deeply to me. 
He calls out to Moses using his name, but saying it twice. Did you pick that up as we read it? Moses, Moses. In ancient Semitic culture, addressing someone by saying his or her name twice was a way of expressing endearment. That is affection and friendship. But Moses had never met him. What does this say about our God? Moses would have understood immediately that he was being addressed by someone who knew him, loved him, and was concerned about him. How many times, as we read through three, did uh, chapter three, did God say, and he's going to say it a few more times, he said it at the end of chapter two, if you remember, it said, and God knew. And yet he opens up this, the cry of the Israelites have come out, and I've heard their cry, and I've seen what's happening with their taskmasters, and I've seen them. He would go on to say, the psalmist would say of God that, that he collects the tears that we shed in a big bowl in heaven. Like he understands what we're walking through. And he uses this term to Moses, this term of endearment and friendship, Moses, Moses. It's not the first time he's done this. In Genesis 46, he called out to Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Or in 1 Samuel 3, he says, Samuel, Samuel. Or maybe a little more fresh uh, in your memory would be in Luke 10 when Jesus responds to Martha. Remember how he says it? Martha, Martha. He would call out later to Peter, Simon, Simon. On the road to Damascus, God would speak to Saul and he would say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The purpose was not that those people had, were hard of hearing, right? And they needed to hear their name twice. The purpose was the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, the God that the psalmist says knit us together in our mother's womb is speaking to us in a very way that, 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 that conveys friendship and intimacy. Jesus would hang on the cross. You remember his cry to his father? My God, my God. God makes himself knowable, conversational, able to be experienced. This will be the, one of the major themes of Exodus moving forward, God's divine presence. Many commentators would say that this is Moses' again conversion experience where he goes from knowing about God to knowing God personally. We talked about this in our little youth thing this uh, Wednesday night. And we looked at all the different places where God shows up and how he dealt with people in a progressive way. Either in the burning bush or the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. By sending angels and then eventually Jesus himself put him in the form of withness. I love that word. That he came to be with us and we can be with him. But not just that, that Jesus said, listen, I've got to go. It's going to be better for you to go, for me to go, and then I'm going to send the Spirit. So now we don't have to go to an actual place where Jesus is bodily, but that his Spirit lives inside of us, that we don't have to wander around looking for an actual burning bush so that we can hear the voice of God, that the Holy Spirit is within us, leading us, it says in the book of John, to all truth. And he's speaking to us. And I love this, as God speaks to Moses, is that he conveys to Moses, Moses, I know you. 
And I've known you from the beginning. I know you in a very real, like a way that a mom would call out to her kids. But then he asked Moses to go do some incredible thing. Something that's going to require a lot of faith and it's going to be really difficult. I was joking around with someone even this morning. That God's call on our life is, is rarely comfortable. He is always pushing us, asking us to step out and to trust him. That is the call of our God. And as we look through every time that he shows up in scripture, and he's going to show up a lot, he's calling people radically in and he's sending them radically out. Not only is God altogether different and he's present, we see he's compassionate. We don't have time to get into all of these, but he deals so tenderly with Moses. Moses continues to make this litany of excuses as to why he couldn't do it, and God just walked with him through them, returning his focus to the right thing. We see that God's sufficient. This might be one of the main points of this very text and in this chapter that God is sufficient, that he's dependable. And this is what he's... God is trying to show Moses. He's driving this point home by the introduction of his name. Again, in verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, in verse 14, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. The I am has sent you. And it's pretty interesting as you study that is God's name is actually not a name at all. It's a verb. Literally might be better translated, um, I be because I be. In the Hebrew, it's hayah. I memorized it in Hebrew class like a, uh, like a karate move. Hayah. We write it down, Yahweh. Or because the Israelites were... With fear and reverence, they didn't even want to say the name Yahweh, God's covenant name. They would write it Jehovah. It literally means I am. God is saying, Moses, I'm not like anything you've ever experienced, buddy. I don't have needs. I don't require any help. I don't get tired. I have no limits. I did not have a beginning. I will not have an ending. I am unbounded, unchanged, Always and forever the same. So I'm not intimidated by Pharaoh or limited by your inabilities or the things you've messed up in the past. Moses, I am. So Moses, if the eternal I am is on your side, you're not going to need anything else. All those places in your life, you feel like you aren't enough. I am enough. It's no longer about who you are. It's about who I am. In fact, throughout Scripture, we learn that God doesn't often choose the guy that says, oh, I know why God chose me. I've got it all together. Man, God's lucky to have me on his team. All the talent that I bring to the table. No, that kind of guy just clogs up the line. When they accomplish something great, they brag on themselves, saying, finally, the world is noticing my talent. But God prefers instruments who are broken, who feel insufficient, who know they have to lean on him. Is there no greater story about this than Gideon in the Old Testament? Who is, who is like, uh, 
He's like the guy that messed everything up. And even then, God didn't let him have an army. Well, not much of one. And the army he had couldn't have any weapons. If God's trying to drive the point home so that we would hear this thousands of years later, listen, Luke, it is not about you, buddy. Covenant Church, it is not about us. It is not about what we bring to the table. This is all about who God is. And he is going to flex his arm. He's going to say that down in a few verses. That Pharaoh's not going to let you go unless I get involved. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there's not many mighty, not many eloquent, not many rich or powerful that God chooses. No, he chooses the weak and the despised so that the glory will go to him. As a matter of fact, one commentator said, feeling inadequate is almost a prerequisite to being used by God. Todd would continue to explain this holy name of I am. If you do the study, I'm just going to briefly kind of go over a few with you. These I am statements throughout the Old and New Testament. This word Yahweh or Jehovah is used 6,519 times in the Old Testament. It's normally written in your Bible as, as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that, we're not seeing God as we saw in Genesis 1, Elohim, creator God. What we are seeing is this covenant God. And every, it's almost like his, uh, his personal name with them. Right? Like, my wife can call me certain things. It's a personal name. If you call me those things, I'm going to punch you in the face because that's inappropriate, right? You shouldn't do that. This is the personal name that he gives to his people. This is my name for you, and it's the I am, and you're going to need to know this because you're going to walk through difficulty, and it's going to look like you're sinking in, and there's nothing, there's, there's no possible outcome that you can even foresee happening, and then I'm going to step in, and because I am the I am, I'm going to be what you need. He would use these statements again and again wherever these people, the people of God, lacked something, God would step in and supply it. In Exodus, we're going to see in a few chapters, when the people of Israel were wounded and sick because of their sin, God revealed himself as Jehovah Rapha, literally means I am your healer. In Leviticus, when Moses laid out the law, the great description of how we should walk with God in a righteous way, the people said, as we do too, whoever could live this way? And God says to them, he answers them, Jehovah Mekaroskim, I am your sanctifier. Ellie was reading my notes this morning. He said, how do you say that word, Dad? I said, I have no idea. You just say it quickly and with confidence and people think you know what you're talking about. I am the God who enables you to walk with me. Isn't that brilliant? I just love this. Philippians, Paul would later say, it's a God who's at work in us to will and to do what God's called us to do. That God is at work. He is our sanctifier. He's the one enabling us to live out his righteous demands on our life. And Jeremiah, when he was so discouraged by Israel's persistent inability to walk faithfully before God, he said, they said, how can we survive? We are so sinful. God said, Jehovah, said, Kenu, I am your righteousness. In Ezekiel's day, when the people of Israel felt scared and alone and besieged by enemies all around, God said, Jehovah, Shammah, I am the God who is ever present. When David felt lost and confused with no friends left in the world, 
He called out, he called God Jehovah Ra, the Lord, I am your shepherd. To Abraham, who faced impossible circumstances with no seeming way out, God said, Jehovah Jireh, I am your provider. And to Isaiah, who wasn't sure how he would survive another day, God said, Jehovah Sabaoth, I am your defender. Or literally translated, the God who fights for you. In this incredible In the New Testament, Jesus takes this I am name to himself. The Pharisees claim that Jesus must have been demon possessed. He's having an interaction with them in John chapter 8. I think I have this passage on the screen. Jesus saying, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Jesus speaking of himself. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. These Jewish people would have been very familiar with the I am. That's the ego, I, me in Greek. This is what the transliteration and the Septuagint would have been, that they would have read it this way, I am. And so when they heard him say that, They were so deeply offended, it says in verse 59, that they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What Jesus was saying to them and saying to us, we get, like after that first like uh, moment with Moses, where God says, Moses, I am, the rest of scripture just further divines everything that that means. And yet, yet we won't ever know it fully this side of heaven. Jesus would use this again and again in John 6, 35. He said, I'm the bread of life. And John 7, he says, I'm the living water. And John 8, he says, I am the light. And John 10, he says, I'm the door. And John 14, he says, I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Maybe my favorite is in John 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I love this, that... Moses kind of found his occupation as a shepherd because there was nothing else left for him to do in the desert. But Jesus came for this very reason to be our intentional shepherd. Again in John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. When you pan out and take just kind of a big view of what's going on in this passage, one of the major themes in Exodus 3 is that God, the God of the Bible, the covenant God Yahweh, is a God who saves and sins. 
he invites Moses in. Using his name, Moses, Moses, this term of endearment, invites him closer. Certainly with awe and respect, ask him to take his sandals off because the place where he's standing would be holy. He invites Moses in. He converses with Moses. He puts up with Moses' excuses. He answers them. He provides provision again and again. You see this invitation in. But Moses just doesn't put up a tent and stay there. No, God tells Moses, Moses, I have something for you. And he sends them. And this is where I feel like we get stuck in the church. We love the invitation in. We love the warm feelings. We love to be singers of the songs, the great songs. And we've got some phenomenal songs. I remember as a kid singing uh, Marching to Zion. I had no idea what that meant. We're, I'm, I'm just imagining we're like all marching somewhere. Where does that? I asked the music director after one service. I was probably 10 or 11. Hey, where, where's Zion? Where are we marching to? He said, I have no idea. Okay. So we're singing these things. These songs today, are, even today, are so rich. And I love to sing the songs. My neighbors think I'm loony. I get on the lawnmower with a little praise and worship in. I got both hands up, man. I just I cannot cut a straight line to save my life. But it's not just singing the songs, friends. We've got to be a liver of the life. And when God calls us radically in, he sends us radically out. And this is the call we don't like because we want to be comfortable. Parents, what if, what if the most significant contribution that you ever make to the world is not something you do but someone you, who you raise? And God is preparing them to send them overseas to an unreached people group. And you might not ever see them as frequently as you want. Is that something that you're willing to give up? Because when God calls you radically in, he sends you radically out. And just as he has sent us, maybe it's not that radical. Maybe, maybe our radical obedience that God is working in us is just to be a light in our workplaces. To be people of integrity. To brag on God and what he's doing in our lives. To stay faithful in our marriage. To love our spouse well. To love our kids well to love the difficult neighbors around us well let's not even talk about the extended family that we have all of us have a a crazy uncle or aunt in that right and God's asked us to love them well and to be a display of God's grace to them when God calls us radically in he does it but then he sends us radically out and he does this and I love this that it's not like just this one sweeping thing that he does with all of us He's our good shepherd, and so he leads us. God is leading us, trying to lead us. Is that not what God told Saul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why do you continue to kick against the goads, man? Why do you keep trying to run against the way that I am orchestrating the universe to go? This is not going to go well with you. Jesus, our good shepherd. Listen, somebody's leading you. You're following someone. Either it's your friends, it's the culture, it's yourself. Somebody is leading you. You are slaves to something. The only one good enough and wise enough for us ever to surrender 
our freedom to would be to God our maker because he gives back a freer life than we could have ever imagined. So God saves and sins. Let me end with that question. Are you saved? Now that none of you know about God in some general sense, have you heard God's call to you? As he called to Moses, 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 this have you heard him speak to you? And have you turned to follow what he's asked you to do, given your life to him? And the follow-up question maybe I would say is, are you sent? But I know you're sent. Where are you sent? Are you depending on God to lead you today? Maybe that's the question. Are you depending on God to lead you today? Just a moment, we're going to take communion. And this is just this brilliant reminder of these very things. We're invited to the table of Jesus to eat with him, called radically in. Yet even at that table, he would tell his own disciples that they were to go proclaim him again and again. That we're sent. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. Just the weightiness of even this very text. We didn't get time to go through all of it this morning but Holy Spirit I pray that you would illuminate this truth to us that we would hear your voice and respond in obedience I truly believe there's people even in our room in this room today who don't really know you they know about you they've heard stories they've they've learned the things maybe but but they don't know you so I pray even in the stillness of this moment in just a second that how they would hear you calling them okay come follow me And many of us, we've, we've experienced the intimacy and forgiveness of sin and peace and joy that you provide. Yet, yet we don't want to follow you anywhere. We've made our God or our idol the idol of comfort. And we've set our heart on attaining comfort and we've missed what you're doing. Lord, give us the courage and boldness to take great steps of faith. Lord, as we take communion here as a family, and we be reminded that you're inviting us in and sending us out. It's in your great, mighty name that we pray, amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Our communion servers are here. Take as much time as you need to prepare your heart for that, and then we're gonna sing a song together in just a moment. Come when you're ready.